Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yagging about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners, including our colleagues, to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Neil Jones, the Managing Director of Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I am joined by Scott Anderson of Worrells and my colleague at Tax Banter, Nicole Rowan. Scott and Nicole, welcome to Tax Yak. Thanks, Neil. It's really great to be here and really great to have Scott Anderson joining us to discuss this case today. Thanks, it's, thanks, Cole. It's good to be here as well. Uh, thanks to Neil and Sachs Spencer, and um, it's great to be part of the podcast. Uh, welcome you both. Now, just for our listeners, uh, Scott is an insolvency practitioner. He's a member of the Chartered Accountants of uh, Australia and New Zealand. He's also a member of IPA and a member of ARITA, the Australian Reconstruction and Insolvency Turnaround Association, a registered liquidator and certainly uh, looking forward to his insights on the asset protection that uh, people are trying to achieve out there. Uh, Nicole is a lawyer, uh, admitted as a solicitor in Victoria, and again, we'll be dealing with some of the legal concepts that are relevant in our asset protection strategies and whether a recent decision of the full federal court has put those strategies at risk. So I might just begin um, for both of you just to talk about asset protection generally. Now, most people have the common understanding that asset protection is a two-sided coin. We want to make sure that business owners' assets are not put at risk from the creditors of a business. But there's also that other side where we don't want the business assets to be at risk from the creditors of the business owners. So we don't want their personal creditors trying to get their hands on business assets. So we always think of asset protection as a, as a two-sided coin or a two-way street. So, Um, Nicole, I'll ask you first, what common strategies do you see out there where people are trying to protect uh, their assets, either their own assets or the business assets? What do you see? Uh, Well, I guess back to your first point, you do have to look at what is the asset, who is the asset, and um, also what or who are we protecting it from. But certainly the business structure that you choose is going to be relevant in terms of protecting the business assets, but also protecting the personal assets as well from uh, any issues arising within the business. I think it's also very important to separate business from personal. Uh, That actually makes good tax sense. The intermingling of entity, including SMSF um, uh, funds, I guess, with personal funds creates all sorts of problems. And we have a number of cases where that intermingling of assets has created problems, most recently, perhaps the, um, the Kong case as well. Uh, Proper procedural processes are also very important. If you're going to undertake a particular transfer, you need to do that properly. You need to ensure your contracts are all uh, accurately prepared, uh, you know, ensure that you've got the right deeds in place. Obviously, insurance can go to some extent of protecting assets, but because insurance doesn't necessarily uh, protect our assets as far as we want, that's when we start to look at other kinds of opportunities like the discretionary trusts, Uh, Not that they're necessarily foolproof, you know, if there's loans um, between the discretionary trust and the person that might um, limit the extent of protection, Uh, a UPE, you know, might be a problem. And then, of course, we've got, you know, as we're going to talk about today, the transfer of assets or putting assets into the spouse's name. Okay, so there can can be some mitigation strategies by insurances and other things, but you've mentioned uh, perhaps use of other entities. Scott, in your travels and... uh, journeys through these these parts of uh, our world. What do you see as the common strategies that people 
try to adopt to uh, protect their assets? Uh, look, Bill, I'd suggest that um, Nicole's answered that fantastically well uh, because I think she's covered off uh, a lot of what I see in practice. So in the day-to-day -day that um, I'm involved with insolvencies is that we deal with a lot of uh, corporate vehicles um, as standalone um, operating entities. So the, the corporate veil being a, an attempted asset protection strategy there. Then you also have, as Nicole pointed out, the discretionary trust uh, being a vehicle as well. Now, there's one thing to bear in mind as well with discretionary trusts is that it probably needs to have that corporate entity in there as the trustee, because we do see in rare circumstances, instances where there is an individual sitting there as a, uh, a, tr as a trustee. Now, they tend to not be uh, afforded that same protection as what would be the case if it was a corporate trustee sitting there. And is that just putting in that right of indemnification that a trustee normally would have from the assets of the trust? Correct, yes. So that's absolutely right. And then Nicole touched on this as well, is one of the things that we do see is uh, the structures that are being put in place, sometimes not being completely adhered to or respected. And so that lends itself to a scenario where inadvertently the protection is, uh, is lost, which can then lend itself in that situation where there's no benefit. So that insurance, which has been taken out through the structure has, uh, has been foregone, comes down to, as Nicole was saying, unpaid present entitlements yeah. with the trusts. Then you also have from a purely corporate uh, sense or a company, you have instances where there could be debit loan accounts. There can be instances where um, management have actually made some poor decisions by uh, entering to personal guarantees, bank loans, and they are at times the person that could also be a possessor of an interest in third-party property, such as a matrimonial home, which then exposes that. And that's if you're going to use these these strategies, whether we use you know other entities to hold our assets, um, making sure there's no cross uh, transactions that put at risk, uh, I think is an important in trying to develop the strategies. So the asset protection strategies has been a, a fact of life for a long time for business owners. I suppose of recent times we've seen some trends where those strategies, as you say, if you dot your I's and cross your T's, you're, you've got this hope and expectation that your strategy is going to work. But we've uh, had a recent decision of a full federal court, which is still an ongoing dispute, and it's caused a lot of people a lot of concern. And I've seen a, a number of articles and commentators uh, looking at this. So. I suppose the question becomes is, are those strategies going to work and, and perhaps what we can do to, uh, to beef up those strategies and maybe ensure those assets are protected. So I want to touch on the, the recent full federal court decision of Bosnac, And uh, I'm just going to give a brief summary of the facts and then we might look and dive into it. But uh, Mr. Bosnac and Mrs. Bosnac bought a property in Perth. They paid four and a half million dollars in a beautiful suburb called Belkeith. If you're not familiar with the um, CBD of Perth, it's only about 10 kilometres out of the city on the river, uh, one of the wealthiest postcodes in the country, if I understand correctly. And having acquired the property by paying a deposit of 250000 out of a joint account and then borrowing $4.5 million in a joint loan from Westpac, and a couple of loans, but basically $4.5 million of borrowing. The property was then put in Ms. Bosanek's name only. 
And so the question was, with Mr. Bozanak having some issues with the ATO and the tax office having raised a number of assessments for multi-multi-million dollars of tax, the question was, was whether that matrimonial home was really an asset of Mr. Bozanak, even though it had only gone in her name. And the commissioner was trying to say that at least half of the matrimonial home ought to be available to satisfy his outstanding tax obligations. So that's a sort of brief scenario of the Bosnick dispute and what the commissioner has been attempting to do and in the most recent outcome has been successful in suggesting that Mr Bosnick actually has a half interest in the property. So Nicole, I might just get your views on the, the, the decision uh, initially uh, and, and whether you want to add to any of the basic facts as I've outlined them. Yeah, so a couple of points. First, I'm, I might just say that there's never been any suggestion, whilst we're talking about asset protection today, there wasn't any suggestion in the proceedings that the decision back in 2006 to put the home in Ms. Bosanac's name was for asset protection purposes. So we'll say that. And now here we are, I guess, in 2021, looking at, uh, as things have evolved over the years, whether uh, that intention uh, or what was the intention at the time when they did in, enter into that transaction. So we've got two, I guess, um, presumptions that are possible in the arrangement between Mr. and Mrs. Bosanac. So one of the um, presumptions is that there is a resulting trust, i.e. that Ms. Bosanac is holding as the legal title holder, legal title holder is holding 50% of the, the property on trust for Mr. Bosanac. So the presumption of, of a resulting trust is basically where you've got the two parties who contribute to the purchase price of a property, but legal title vests only in one. But the law, however, presumes that it was intended that the legal title holder does so for both contributors, and therefore that's when a resulting trust will exist. So that's... Sorry, yep. Nicole. And, and that's a common uh, occurrence, isn't it? If two people pay for an asset, but you put it in one name only, you naturally assume or you, you basically have cause to say, well, the result is you're holding it on my behalf because I've helped pay for it. Yes. And um, the, it has been a area that has been significantly litigated over the years, going back many, many years. But then on the other side, we've got this presumption of advancement, which is the existence of certain relationships between the parties, which provides a presumption against a trust being recognised and rather actually assumes that there's been a gifting by or an advancement of what would other, otherwise be recognised as a beneficial interest. So that's what Ms Bosanac, who is the legal title holder of this property is saying that when it was acquired you know I guess the reason for it being put into her name is it because because it was by way of a gift to her and Mr Bosanac's contribution was basically basically under this presumption of advancement that he intended for her to have the full benefit of that property and it, it's important to note that the federal court um, prior to the full federal court decision, the federal court actually did find that the presumption of advancement existed, but that was overturned by the full federal court. So to understand that, where two people pay jointly for an asset, we assume that the legal owner is holding an interest on behalf of the other contributor. That's that resulting trust concept. But that can be overturned, if you like, or negated 
by the presumption of advancement, which is if you're in a relationship, such as husband and wife, spouse, uh, and you do put the property in one name only, that's what you meant to do. In other words, you've advanced your interest in the property. Your contribution is effectively a gift. And as you say, Justice McCarriture in his initial decision made that finding and conclusion. So, Scott, just in, in your views where you see these sort of, you know, the non-at-risk spouse is the holder of legal title to assets, is it common practice perhaps to challenge that from an insolvency um, point of view to chase down money for creditors? It is circumstantial in terms of the uh, regularity that such claims would be pursued. It's fair to say that the circumstances in Bosnac uh, are not straightforward. And I think that can be uh, recognised in the fact that it's now subject to appeal, or at least leave being sought to, uh, to appeal to the High Court. The instances where they would be challenged would depend upon all the facts and circumstances and also the, um, the, the overall interest that could be recovered or value of the interest to be recovered for the benefit of creditors. Now, that being said, is in a practical sense is that these transactions and relationships and strategies are always uh, reviewed and, and investigated to the extent that a determination has to be made by the trustee to determine whether or not it is in the interest of creditors or the estate to take these uh, claims or pursuit of claims uh, any further. And there's the okay. obligation to report and obviously disclose these to uh, to the people that so, are so it does come down to the individual circumstances and the facts and peculiarities of a particular situation so who contributed to the purchase of an asset who has funded any loan repayments that would be another factor that might be relevant absolutely um, where the initial purchase has been derived from at least the funds for that um, contribution also Things such as the ongoing maintenance and repair of property, um, who's put the effort into that, who's resided in it. So there's many factors that are taken into account and the trustee would uh, would accumulate all this information um, to reach a preliminary conclusion before seeking uh, particular advice from, um, from a solicitor. Okay, so, so we understand the strategies that people adopt, you know, putting assets in the legal name of perhaps the non-at-risk party. We know that from what you've just said, Scott, that it's always examined and it's always looked at to see whether it's worth a, a pursuit or not, to see whether that asset could be available to satisfy outstanding obligations. So the federal court initially decided in favour, if you like, of the protection strategy that Mr. Bozanak, if he was really a, a holder of an interest in the property, then the federal court's initial decision sided with him that Ms. Bozanak held the asset. His contribution was effectively a gift and advancement so that that's what they intended. We never actually got any evidence directly from Mr. Bozanak about what he intended, which is an interesting observation of the case. So, Nicola, what, what did the full federal court then do? Because we've had that decision overturned by the full federal court. So the commissioner appealed the decision of the federal court and I guess there were two kind of areas of their appeal. One that is that they were trying to say that the presumption of advancement 
uh, doesn't necessarily apply anymore to the matrimonial home. But um, the full federal court didn't accept that. Um, the second position that the, um, the commissioner was appealing on was on the basis that the um, single judge in the federal court probably didn't give enough weight to the significant contribution that Mr. Bozanak had made, or perhaps the significant liability that he took on in actually being a joint borrower for a $4.5 million home that was then put into his wife's name. And I think the fact that it was a matrimonial home, that they did live there for at least eight years together, uh, is, is certainly relevant. And so the I think the full federal court basically said that um, the, the single judge, perhaps um, there was an error in not considering that significant liability so the, that so Mr. The, Bosnack took on. Sorry, Nicole. So yep. what they're really saying is, why would you expose yourself to a fairly significant debt without a corresponding asset to back it up? Yes. Okay. And then there were some other facts that I think supported that because uh, later there was further borrowing against that property that actually, and when we say further borrowing, we're talking about $3.6 million, but that borrowing was used predominantly by Mr. Bozanak to, uh, we understand, fund his share trading activities. So he was borrowing against the property in order to you know, access funds for his own use. So it does indicate in some respects that he saw the property as being something that was an asset of his or available to him, a resource, at least to some extent. And then you lay the separation of the parties because they are no longer together. And whilst they haven't formally gone through the divorce proceeding yet, he, he certainly hasn't put his hand up to say that I've got half of the house. Not yet anyway. No, and I don't know if we really want to wander into this space of, you know, the family law considerations, but it is worth noting that the family law proceedings, or perhaps I should say the property settlement um, proceedings are actually still underway. They haven't actually resolved and I'm sure they couldn't be resolved until this matter is settled anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Scott, you got any views on the, the matrimonial side of things? Oh, well, that would add a, a layer of complexity to a bankruptcy, uh, undoubtedly. It's quite interesting, though, to look at it from the um, trustee's perspective. When you take into account the presumption of advancement and the connotation of the court's eyes, that it's perceived to be a, a gift of sorts. So from a trustee's perspective, uh, subject to timing, but if you look at um, the uh, intentions of the parties, that it is a gift, but if the underlying intention is that it's to uh, put that asset outside of the reach of creditors and the circumstances at the time of that gift uh, having occurred lend themselves to uh, the individual uh, being potentially or at risk of becoming insolvent, so they've taken on a, a significant amount of risk, well then under sections uh, 120 and 121 of the Bankruptcy Act, is that it could be subject to application of being set aside by the uh, bankruptcy trustee because they're avoidable because it's under market. There's a natural love and affection isn't um, classified as being uh, fair market consideration in um, under the Bankruptcy Act or alternatively, uh, there's a transfer, an element of transfer to defeat the intention of creditors. So if that exists, uh, a trustee can certainly um, make an application to set aside in addition to these other causes of action. And I, th I think we've got plenty of um, precedents on the books that sort of, if you're trying to defeat creditors, 
either a family law court or a um, insolvency proceeding, we'll look through that. We've got Rich Star Enterprises and we've got um, Dr. Spry and Kennan versus Spry in the High Court. Uh, that they look through the trust structures to say that it was an asset of the marriage. So we, I think in family law proceedings and in insolvency matters, the courts will probably look through some of the niceties of asset protection strategies if your intention was for perhaps some other um, purpose, either to avoid creditors or perhaps to say that the asset should not be at risk. Now, Ms. Bozanak has filed a special leave application. So she wants to overturn the full federal court decision and say it's my house. He doesn't own any of it, therefore you're not getting your hands on it to help him pay his tax debt. So, Nicole, do you view the uh, hearing as a likely success? Do you think the High Court will want to um, give some considered views on these issues? Is special leave likely to be granted? Uh, it's a really interesting question. I, I wonder whether the High Court has or is considering some of the comments made by both the federal court and the full federal court uh, judges in respect of whether the presumption of advancement is outdated and is keeping with, you know, kind of modern or community standards as of today, because the presumption of advancement operates in quite a gendered way and only in respect of certain relationships. It only operates in respect of a husband making a gift to a wife. And that's a very specific husband and a very specific wife. It doesn't operate in the other way, wife to the husband. It doesn't operate in respect of de facto relationships and it doesn't operate in respect of same-sex spouses. So even if they're same-sex marriages. So, you know, potentially the High Court could look at it from that perspective. I mean, I don't think the case necessarily calls for that, but it might be an opportunity that the High Court takes up and either says it is actually out of dated, might not be, uh, you know, what all those out there seeking asset protection want to hear, but alternatively, the High Court might say, well, we actually still think the presumption has a role in today's society, but it should actually be expanded to operate beyond just these certain relationships of a husband gifting to a wife. So I think there's an opportunity for the High Court if they feel like wandering into that space in respect of the specific Bosnac circumstances, because there was only the, the evidence uh, really presented by the, the um, Commissioner of Taxation that was used to arrive at the outcome. It was really um, different inferences were drawn first by the federal court and then by the full federal court. Same facts, different outcome. So, so is know. that a legal issue the High Court might want to opine on? The fact that you've got a given set of facts and they were not in dispute. It's only what inferences do you draw when mm. particularly some of the information perhaps is lacking, in, including the intention. What was meant by the parties when they bought the house? What did they intend? What, was, what were they meaning to do? And we don't have that direct evidence. So we have to infer from the facts as found what the situation requires. So my personal view is I want them to grant special leave. I want them to consider the concepts of resulting trust and whether the presumption of advancement would defeat the concept of that resulting trust and then in what circumstances the presumption of advancement can be rebutted. Um, so I would, I would hope that special leave is granted. I think they're providing clarity to, uh, well, really just clarity to whether you're operating in the insolvency space or in, you know, just dealing with creditors generally, I think clarity would be helpful. And that's 
it's clearly something that the High Court can do, uh, I guess, more completely than what the full federal court can do. Yeah, and Scott, your view, do you think it'll go further? I don't really have a view on whether or not it'll go further, but I can tell you that there would be a lot of people within our industry uh, watching this pretty closely because I think there's some wide um, ramifications coming from it if they do decide, and at least it'll provide some certainty in terms of guidance as well in, in, in how to apply these uh, presumptions and principles in, in reviewing claims as well that may exist. Uh, yeah, I th thanks, Scott. Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I'm think I've been, since, ever since the full federal court decision was handed down, I've been thinking what else could they have done perhaps to ensure that the protection strategy was effective? So if we really intend that the asset is to be held legally by one party, in this case, the spouse, and that we are advancing our contribution as by way of gift, do I need to go down the path of doing a formal deed of gift? So are we looking at situations to strengthen the asset protection strategy by a formal deed of gift, say from a party in the marriage? So I love you, I really do love you, I want you to have the house, but just to make it all really look good, I'll execute a legal document and do a deed of gift. Would that would that help and bolster our position? It could. It, that would be based on the circumstances at the time of the deed of gift being entered into. Because if there was no risk, or there'd been no risk taken on by Mr. Bosnak at that time, then it's going to make it uh, a little bit more challenging for a trustee to be able to prove that there was an intent to uh, move that asset from the um, from the hands of the trustee for the benefit of creditors. Now, one of the factors to, to look at as well would be uh, whether or not there was actual uh, market value consideration paid for that. So if there was a situation where you wanted to bolster the strength of the scenario, is that if Mrs. Bosnack had have actually paid um, reasonable market consideration for her interest, so that would be net of any securities. So take out the, the mortgage from the value. If, that, if those funds had actually been paid to Mr. Bosnack at that time, so she's notionally acquired her interest, then it's a completely different set of, set of facts which would um, go towards strengthening her position overall as well and quite possibly removing this whole matter from, um, from contention as well. Yeah. You're right. I mean, who's paying for the asset? What is my true level of equity rather than have a, you know, it's in my name, so it's my asset, but does the resulting trust doctrine kick in to say, well, I'm holding half of it on behalf of the other contributor? Or can we negate that resulting trust because of the relationship and that what you really intended was to, for you to have the asset, that's why it's in your name, and therefore the presumption of advancement does apply. It, uh, it, all of those facts and circumstances need to be weighed up and looked at, I suppose. And that, that's why I think a, a bit more guidance from the High Court would be really helpful, I think, both not only for the business owners in protecting their assets out there, uh, whether it be from family law proceedings or, or business creditors and in insolvency situations, uh, a little bit more certainty as to, to, to whether the presumption can apply or not apply. I think, Nicole, your comments about today's modern world is a little bit different than when this concept first arose back in 1913 or whenever it was. Perhaps this concept arose too because for, you know, many years women couldn't actually own property. So I'm sure it perhaps even goes back that far. 
I also wonder, and I'd really love your thoughts on this, Scott, if we did have to start moving towards the use of deeds, so making it very clear, for example, that the husband's making a gift of property, he has no beneficial interest in it, putting that into writing in a deed, we'd still have to be really careful about our future conduct, because if there was any conduct inconsistent with that deed, would that still, like would the courts would still, I expect, have the ability to make orders perhaps overriding uh, that deed. Would that be the case or, or what do you think? Nicole, I think that's um, absolutely uh, right. It is, we look at it in the circumstances where um, after that deed has been entered into and it's a, um, an airtight deed, it sets out uh, all the, the terms of the, the gift. And then Mr. Bozanak would have continued to make contributions directly to the house in terms of the mortgage repayments or its maintenance and upkeep and perhaps improvements is then that it would bring into question as to what was happening in relation to the, um, the intentions of that deed um, being brought into question. Where you compare that to a scenario where perhaps Mr. Boz Mrs. Bozanak was um, continuing to pay for the house and the capital improvements, pay the rates, insurances and the like from income that she's separately earning, then that would uh, perhaps by way of conduct go to further the strength of that gift of, gift of, gift of deed or deed of gift, I should say, um, to, to basically to reiterate the, those circumstances. Or could those contribute further contributions, Scott, in terms of upkeep and maintenance be further deeds of gift or advances under the presumption of advancement? Quite possibly, yes. It's and I mean, husband and wife, spouses, they share a lot. They share a lot. They contribute a lot to the joint efforts of, of running the household. And maybe you could say, well, legally it's yours, but we're both in this together. So it is an interesting uh, situation and certainly one that has caused a few people a bit of nervousness around the country. Uh, I, as for that reason, I think the High Court would, I, I would prefer them to grant special leave and have a look at the issue. So we stay tuned. We wait for the next chapter in the saga. And so, Nicole, thank you very much for your contribution on today's podcast. Scott, thank you for your insights, particularly from the insolvency side of the, uh, this um, issue. Uh, we do all look forward to the High Court's determination and the, and the two judges who sit on the special leave application, I look forward to reading with interest uh, their um analysis of this and whether they grant special leave or not. Um, any final concluding remarks? Uh, perhaps for me is that um, for, for people seeking to go about uh, developing an asset protection strategy, given that it is a, uh, an evolving space, is it, it would be uh, wise to seek uh, professional guidance on it. Um, and to that extent, speak to you um, trusted solicitor, but then be wise when you're implementing it and probably revisit that strategy as well over the journey uh, because, again, it does evolve and so you just need to make sure that things are being adhered to as the, uh, the intention was from the outset. That's probably wise counsel, Scott. And Nicole, any concluding remark? I was actually only going to point out that if someone's looking for this case, if they feel like reading the 70-page um, judgment from the federal court, just to look for the uh, the 
Commissioner of Taxation and Bosnac number seven case. Uh, so that's the number seven case. There are a number of um, cases between the Commissioner of Taxation and Mr. Bosnac. So it's the number seven from the 2021 uh, that you're looking for. And then of course, there's the, the full federal court hearing. So that's a much shorter, that's only about um, 10 pages or so. So it's of course, um, the full federal court overturned the federal court. So it's just really important when you're looking at cases that you know that you're, you're reading the most recent one because you know sometimes those decisions do get overturned. So that's um, full federal court is Commission of Taxation of Bosnac 2021 FCAFC 158. Thanks for that reference, Nicole. And yes, if you are searching the court list for Bosnac, there is a, the, the commissioner and the Bosnacs are well known. <laughs> they've, they've had history. Um, thank you very much for both of your contributions today. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter blog. We look very much for you joining us next time. Thank you.